Well, once again, uh, good evening. If you'd like to turn there with me, our text tonight will be from 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. And I'll just note as well that tonight I will be reading from and working from the New English translation. So if you're following along in a different, uh, in a different translation, that would be why some of the words and phrases might be a little bit different. So again, 1 John 3, verses 4 through 9. Pay close attention, brothers and sisters, for these are the words of our Lord. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Indeed, sin is lawlessness. And you know that Jesus was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Everyone who resides in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was revealed, to destroy the works of the devil. Everyone who has been fathered by God does not practice sin, because God's seed resides in him, and thus he is not able to sin, because he has been fathered by God. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help this evening. Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, who alone possesses true wisdom, we ask you to illuminate our minds by your Holy Spirit, that we may truly understand your word. Give us grace that we may receive it with reverence and sincere humility, and may it lead us to put our whole trust in you alone. And since you have been pleased to count us among your people, help us, O Lord, to give you the love and service that we owe as children to our Father. We ask this for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen. Well, as I was reading this text and, and preparing to exhort from it, I kept thinking of our resident basketball superstar, who doesn't actually happen to be here tonight, but uh, Cyprian uh, kept coming to mind, and uh, it's because he's six feet nine inches tall. And uh, if you don't know, he's the oldest son of our pastor, Danny, who himself is also very tall. I'm not, I don't have the exact numbers on that, maybe six five, somewhere around there. 6'4", okay, well, in any case, they're both tall guys, and uh, the reason I've been thinking about this is because the theme of family resemblance is prominent in our text this week, and Cyprian resembles his father in a very obvious way. Uh, I think we could imagine that if someone were visiting with us, or if you're visiting with us tonight, you might be able to perceive just by looking at the two of them uh, that they're related, just by their height, by the way that they look. So today we're going to look at this text through that sort of familial lens. Like Cyprian resembles Danny in height, John is calling his audience to resemble their heavenly father in behavior. We are to live lives characteristically free from sin and full of righteousness as evidence that we are indeed God's children. So this evening we're going to break down these six verses into one of three thematic units. You may have noticed as we read through the text just a minute ago, John sort of puts forth his message first in verses 4 through 6, and then revisits and elaborates upon each of those points in 7 through 9. So in order to best understand everything he has to say, we're going to place each verse in one of three thematic units. So first, we'll examine John's discussion of the children of Satan in verses 4 and 8. 
Then we will contrast the children of Satan with the children of God by looking at verses 6, 7, and 9. And third, we'll turn to look at the Son of God by examining verses 5 and 8. So we'll start with children of Satan. In verses 4 and 8, John uses the phrase, everyone who practices sin, to introduce two intimately related ideas. So let's start at the beginning of the passage and take a look at the first of those two thoughts. Let's read verse 4 again. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Indeed, sin is lawlessness. Now immediately, this raises a question that will be crucial to our understanding of the rest of the passage. What is the exact relationship between these two terms, sin and lawlessness? It's very important for us to understand what this term lawlessness means, because essentially John is equating it with this term sin. Uh, We might think of them as synonyms, but what John is doing is providing a specific definition of sin for his argument in this passage, equating it with this term lawlessness. So let's answer the question, what is lawlessness? Well, first it should be pointed out that in some sense, all sin is lawlessness. Every sin is an infraction against God's holy law. But here John is talking about not the content or quality of the actions that we call sin, but a specific type of sin that reflects the spiritual reality of the sinner. Lawlessness refers to an attitude and an interior state of the heart. In a strong majority of the usages of this word in the New Testament and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it has to do with the idea of defiantly turning away from God and of being his enemy. So as we come across the term sin in this passage, we should be thinking of it with a definition like this. Sin is lawlessness, a heinous rebellion against the authority of God that reflects the corrupt inner character of the sinner. And here's why this idea is so important. With this specialized definition of sin, we're able to see how John can draw such a close connection between those who practice lawlessness and Satan. Let's turn our attention now to the first part of verse 8. Here's what John says there. The one who practices sin is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. This is when John makes explicit what he was hinting at in verse 4. Those who practice sin, and remember his specialized definition of sin as lawlessness, those who practice sin are of the devil. They are in alliance with the wicked serpent, the great dragon, the ancient enemy of God. And Satan has always committed lawlessness. From the beginning, John says, the devil has never submitted to God, but has sought to take his place and bring destruction to his creation. The devil's constant mission has been to undermine the divine authority of God. And ever since our first parents fell, all of us who have been born resemble the devil in this way, in lawless rebellion against God's authority. John brings out this resemblance in our passage very clearly by using this phrase, of the devil, in verse 8. And while that little preposition of may not appear to contain too much information, there are actually two ideas at play. And the first is the idea of paternity or fatherhood that we've already been talking about um, this evening. Those who practice lawlessness are said to have the devil as their father because they show family resemblance to him. Think of chapter 8 of John's gospel. As the Jewish leaders are seeking to kill Jesus, Jesus says this to them in verses 41 through 44. You people are doing the deeds of your father. 
Then they said to Jesus, We were not born as a result of immorality. We have only one Father, God himself. Jesus replied, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I have come from God and am now here. I have not come on my own initiative, but God sent me. Why don't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot accept my teaching. You people are from your father, the devil, and you do what your father desires. In that passage, the will of the Jewish leaders was precisely in line with the will of Satan to destroy Jesus. Therefore, the Lord tells them in no uncertain terms that they are the devil's children, not God's. The second idea we can see in the phrase of the devil is the idea of two opposing sides. Now, kids, how many of you play sports? You can raise your hands. All right, we've got a couple of athletes in the room tonight. And how many teams are there in your games or matches? That's right, two. Well, I used to play basketball. Um, I don't know if that's be a surprise to some of you, but uh, I did play in middle school, and in a basketball game, there are only two teams. Every player on the court plays for one team or the other. There's no player who plays for both sides. In our passage, John is making that same point in a spiritual context. We all must choose one side or the other. If you fail to submit to your creator and live righteously, you belong to the devil, not to God. By eliminating any gray area, John assures his readers and us that there are only two choices. Live in league with the devil as his child or recognize the authority of God and live as his child. This leads us into John's discussion of another group, the second group of this passage. In contrast to the children of Satan, let's think for a moment about the children of God. What John writes concerning this group comes in verses 6, 7, and 9. And with three different indicators or clues, John lets us know that the members of this group, the children of God, are Christians. One clue is found right at the beginning of verse 6 with the phrase, everyone who resides in him, the him being Christ. Now, if you were to flip back and look at chapter 2 of 1 John, you would find that those who reside in Christ are those who have been anointed with the very spirit of Christ. They're Christians. The second way John lets us know that he's talking about Christians is by using the familial language that we've been using this evening. At the beginning and the end of verse 9, John uses the phrase, fathered by God. And what that phrase refers to here is being brought to new spiritual life by the will of God. As Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, the person who has been fathered by God is the person who has been born from above, regenerated by the agency of the Holy Spirit. And this leads us to John's third and final indication that the children of God are, in fact, Christians. If you take another look at verse 9, you'll see that right in the middle of the verse, John says that God's seed resides in these people. Now, if John's original audience was hearing this verse, uh, their minds would go back to chapter 2, verse 27, where John used similar language. He said this, Now, as for you, the anointing that you received from him resides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. The anointing in 2.27 is the Holy Spirit, who in that context, John says, was given to believers and remains in them as a defense against deception. But here in our passage, God's seed is another way of talking about the Holy Spirit. But in this context, John says that he's the one who brought about our new life and remains in us to keep us from sin. 
So John has established through the use of these three phrases, reside in him, fathered by God, and God's seed, that he's contrasting Christian believers with the children of Satan. Let's move on now and see how John says that the children of God can be recognized as children of God. Well, first, on the positive side, every child of God practices righteousness. Let's read verse 7 again. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. Practicing righteousness means holy behavior, but it also goes deeper than that. Outward acts of righteousness suggest the existence of an inner righteous character from which those outward actions flow. We know this from Matthew 7, 17 through 20, where Jesus says this, Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree is not able to bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree to bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will recognize them by their fruit. By living lives characterized by righteousness, the children of God prove themselves to be reborn of their heavenly father. So that's the positive side of how the children of God are recognized, righteous living. But there's also a strong negative element to what John is saying. In verse 6, he writes this, Everyone who resides in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has neither seen him nor known him. And in verse 9, he escalates this claim. Everyone who has been fathered by God does not practice sin because God's seed resides in him. And thus, he is not able to sin because he has been fathered by God. Well, if you're like me, then right away you're thinking this has to be some kind of typo. Maybe there's a manuscript variant that says something else. Uh, Basically, this can't be right. I know I'm a Christian, but I sin all the time. If you're familiar with our catechism, you also may have thought of question 114, which goes like this. Question, can those who are converted to God keep the commandments perfectly? Answer, no, but even the holiest men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of obedience. So it seems we have a pretty serious problem here. Our experience in the Christian life, our confessional standards, not to mention a whole host of other scriptures we could think of, seemingly contradict what John is saying. But let me assure you, we're certainly not alone in our initial confusion upon reading these verses. These two phrases in verses 6 and 9, does not sin, and is not able to sin, may be the most debated words in the whole epistle. But before I give you what I think the best way to understand them is, let me highlight one particularly dangerous wrong view that we must avoid. As I was studying for this passage, I came across at least 10 different ways theologians and commentators explained John's words, he is not able to sin. Some really emphasized the tense of the Greek grammar of that verb. Some emphasized certain connections with John's gospel. But all of them agreed upon one thing, and that was this. John is not arguing for sinless perfection. That is, he's not teaching the possibility or the necessity that Christians achieve complete freedom from the presence of sin in this life. This is a dangerous teaching. On the one hand, it creates self-righteousness among those who think they have achieved this status of perfection. And on the other hand, it produces despair among those of us who recognize we're far from perfect. 
So whatever John means, he does not mean that Christians can lead lives excluding each and every sin. The truth is that because of Christ's work on the cross, we have been freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but we will not be finally free from the presence of sin until we're glorified. Well, in addition to the fact that this doctrine contradicts scriptural teaching on sin and the Christian life, we can also see that the sinless perfection interpretation fails on contextual grounds. We could look back to verse 8 of chapter 1, where John says, If we say we do not sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We could also look ahead to chapter 5, verse 16, where John writes this, If anyone sees his fellow Christian committing a sin, and the verse goes on. So clearly John acknowledges, even in this epistle, the category of a true Christian who yet sins. And he's not contradicting himself. So we're back to the same problem. Why does he write that those who have been fathered by God cannot sin? We know we sin, but John says we're not able to. So how do we relieve this tension? I think the real key here is if we think back to chapter 3, verse 4, the first verse of this passage, and John's definition of sin as lawlessness. If we think of sin as lawlessness, a rebellious allegiance with the devil, and considering that we as Christians have been born of God, we've been regenerated, we cannot consent to sin at any level. We must always struggle with it so that we can say along with Paul that when we do sin, we do what we hate. Those who are on God's side cannot act as though they are on the devil's side, rejecting his authority and reveling in wicked behavior. We are people who see and know Christ, the sinless savior of sinners. And for us, because of that identity, that outlaws sin. It outlaws thinking you're better than your neighbor. It outlaws demeaning a fellow brother or sister in Christ. It outlaws angry outbursts, bitterness, complaining, drunkenness, gossip, grudges, mockery, pride, theft, and unforgiveness. Sin and Christ are diametrically opposed to one another. Therefore, to sin is a sign of allegiance with the devil. Just as good fruit reveals a good tree, bad fruit reveals a bad tree. And out of the one root sin of lawlessness grow hundreds and hundreds of fruit sins, and the presence of those fruit sins in our lives, brothers and sisters, causes serious dissonance with who we have been made to be in Christ. Well, let me quickly revisit uh, my brief basketball career I mentioned earlier. In one particularly humiliating game, I acted in a way that caused quite a bit of dissonance with my identity. Um, If I remember correctly, I, I received an inbound pass, sprinted toward the goal, surprisingly no one was in my way, and easily made a layup. All right, I think to myself, you know, keep giving me the ball, we'll win this game, no problem. Um, But then I heard my coach screaming at me from the sidelines, and as you've probably guessed by now, I had run to the other team's goal and scored two points for them. Uh, Needless to say, I spent the rest of the game on the bench. Well, my basketball blunder is a silly story, and I I do hope you got a good laugh in at my expense. But this embarrassing story of mine expresses the very same point John is making in this passage. Our actions should not be contradictory to who we are. When John says that those who have been fathered by God are not able to sin, what he's saying is that we cannot 
commit the root sin of lawlessness because we've been regenerated. Our allegiance is with God, not the devil. But we can and often do commit fruit sins. And this is a massive inconsistency with our identity, with who we have been made to be in Christ. But thankfully, brothers and sisters, John does not stop writing there. He does not leave us without hope. In our final point, we will see that the characteristically sin-free lives of the children of God are only possible because of the eternal Son of God and what he has done for us. Let's read verse 5 and the second part of verse 8. And you know that Jesus was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. For this purpose, the Son of God was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. Now, there are two great purposes that John highlights for us in Jesus being revealed. But before we get to that dual purpose, I'd like to talk for a moment about the appearance or the revelation itself. When John says that Christ was revealed in these verses, I think it's best to understand that in a twofold sense. First, there's a very noticeable meaning. Jesus appeared on earth to complete his messianic mission. That is, he was incarnated, he lived perfectly, he died a sacrificial death to take away our sins, and he earned a perfect righteousness that was imputed to us. But there is another revealing of Christ that John wants to draw our minds to, and that is this, his appearance as the great high priest before the Father in heaven. In the recent context, John has been talking about Christ in heaven. In chapter 2, verse 1, we learned that Jesus is presently in heaven advocating for us. In chapter 3, verse 2, just a couple of verses before this passage begins, we see that Jesus will return from heaven. So when John mentions the appearance of Jesus in these two verses, he's drawing our minds not only to the incarnation, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but also to the Lord's appearance in heaven to present his perfect sacrifice. Similar to the way the Levitical priests entered the Holy of Holies with the animal sacrifice on behalf of Israel, Jesus entered God's presence with his own sacrificial blood to present on behalf of his elect. This picture is made even more glorious with John's phrase at the end of verse 5, in him there is no sin. This description of Jesus as sinless refers to the qualification he required in order to appear in God's presence as the great high priest. In Hebrews 7:26 and 27, we read of this very same idea. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as the high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. So the appearance of Christ John speaks of in these verses is twofold. He was first revealed as the word made flesh on earth, and subsequently he was revealed as the great high priest in heaven. Now, let's address the dual purpose of this twofold appearance. First, John says in verse 5 that Jesus was revealed in order to take away sins. With the first appearance in mind, the appearance of Christ on earth, we think of Christ descending, taking on flesh, dying a propitiatory death, and satisfying the wrath of God. With the second appearance in mind, we think of Christ ascending to heaven and presenting that perfect sacrifice to his Father. 
So if the first purpose of Christ's appearance was to take away sin, the second is closely related and equally good news. Look with me again at the second part of verse 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. The task of Jesus in his life, death, resurrection, and heavenly session is to undo whatever the devil has accomplished and to thwart whatever he attempts. Of course, we know firsthand through many painful experiences in this life that his works are not in a final sense destroyed. We still experience death and temptation, but he has received the lethal wound described in Revelation 12. His days are numbered and his defeat is certain. So the twofold revelation of Christ on earth as Messiah and in heaven as the great high priest was for the dual purpose of taking away our sin and destroying the works of the devil. These realities, these indicatives provide the children of God with hope and power to pursue the kind of life John has been calling his audience to lead, a life characteristically free from sin and full of righteousness. Let me summarize quickly what we've covered so far this evening. First, we talked about John's specialized definition of sin in verse 4 as lawlessness, a rebellious allegiance with the devil and a flagrant opposition to God's authority. Those whose lives are filled with fruit sins and characterized by them prove themselves to be committing the root sin of lawlessness. This is the first group of the passage whom we've referred to as children of Satan because of their likeness to the devil in this way. The second group are the children of God. In contrast with the children of Satan, these are Christians who have been born from above, born of God. They reside in Christ, and Christ resides in them by his Holy Spirit, the indwelling seed of God. John says that these children of God can be recognized, first, by their righteous behavior, and second, because they do not and cannot sin. And he says this only because of the work of the Son of God and the identity the Son has given us. Jesus was revealed on earth to earn salvation for his people and to offer his own life as a propitiation for them. And he was revealed in heaven, where he is even now bearing the blood of that sacrifice on our behalf. By this twofold appearance, he has taken away the sins of the devil and taken away the sins of his people and destroyed the works of the devil. But you may be asking yourself, these are wonderful teachings that John has given us, but how do I apply them to my life? Let me quickly give three exhortations of this text, uh, concrete applications before we close. First, be concerned with sin. Obey God's law. John has been driving this point home throughout the passage. The fruits will expose the roots. While we are not to expect perfection, neither are we to settle for a lifestyle of sin. If we are unconcerned with our sins, excusing them as little weaknesses or maybe even personality traits, we are acting more like children of Satan than of God. We're denying our new birth. We must not be content to go on sinning. Second exhortation, take the side of your father. Every time we sin, we're revealing, at least in that moment, that our heart attitude is more in line with a satanic spirit of lawlessness than a godly spirit of love. So take the side of your father. Live righteously. Finally, as you do these things, look to Jesus for motivation and strength. As believers... 
Though we are painfully aware of our indwelling sin, we should not lose heart. This passage, while full of hard truth, is also a promise of what God intends for his children. One day we will be like Christ, perfect, sinless, and holy. So, brothers and sisters, be assured that your struggle against sin has both purpose and promise. John is letting you know you do not have to regard sin with weary resignation. Christ himself has offered up his body and blood as a sacrifice for all of your sins, past, present, and future, and presented that sacrifice to the Father on your behalf. And he has sent his spirit to remain in you, to indwell in you, as you continue to wrestle with the darkness that still looms in these last days before his return. John's strong imperatives are not reason for despair, but are the clear-cut implications of what Christ has already accomplished. His complete defeat of sin and the works of the devil are John's reasons for instructing us to live lives characteristically free from sin and full of righteousness. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help in doing so. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. Even when the truth it contains feels painful to us as we are so conscious of our sin. Yet we know we may always turn to Christ and the work he has done, knowing he has taken our burden from us. He has earned for us a perfect righteousness. He has satisfied your wrath toward us by taking it upon himself on the cross, and he has guaranteed our share in resurrection life by rising from the grave himself. But in the meantime, before his return, help us, O Lord, by your spirit to fight against sin, to loathe it, to not concede to it, to show ourselves to be your children by leading upright and righteous lives, not out of servile fear, trying to earn something from you, but out of gratitude, knowing what you have done for us. We pray this in the name of our loving Savior and great High Priest, Jesus Christ. Amen.